This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday and that means it's time for our Zoomer Squad and a lot of tough stuff to unpack today. Unfortunately, along with the coronavirus, we are seeing the spread of the virus of ageism. Now, in a lot of different ways, we know that nursing homes are the most vulnerable to outbreaks and the most serious outbreak in the province is at the Pinecrest Nursing Home in Bob Cajun, where nine people have died and 34 workers have developed symptoms of COVID-19. Given the emergency, the province has loosened regulations governing, governing nursing homes to allow them to get help from people without the usual qualifications. Some say this is a massive mistake, while others say it is a necessary evil. And older people are afraid their health care will be rationed based only on age. We'll be talking with the Canadian Medical Association President, Dr. Sandy Buckman, about some comments he made at 1230. And of course, we are taking your calls. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, David Kravitz, Chief Marketing Officer at CARP, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Hello, everyone. Okay, so um, a lot of bad developments that we have to uh, get ahead of. First, let's talk about uh, those new regulations for nursing homes, emergency regulations. Uh, we've had some of the unions and advocates like the Advocacy Center for the Elderly come out and say this is going to be a disaster because they will allow people who are not certified, people who are not trained, even volunteers to come and help out. On the other hand, I heard the head of the Personal Support Workers Association say, we don't like this. The members don't like it, but we need it because we are overwhelmed. Marissa. I think that a CARP would fall squarely in the category of where the Advocacy Center for the Elderly falls, which is that this is going to be a disaster. It's really disappointing that the government has moved in this direction. But frankly, what's more disappointing is the fact that we're here in the first place. The Ontario government has done a good job of getting its house in order. I mean, they prided themselves on it. They campaigned on it. That was so important to them. And I heard actually the finance minister not too long ago, just a few days ago, frankly, talk about, well, you know, the reason we got our house in order was so that we could uh, respond quickly and efficiently to a crisis like this. Of course, that makes a whole lot of sense. For years, Libby, CARP has been talking, has been screaming from the rooftops. Our long-term care homes are not equipped to address the needs of residents today, let alone in a pandemic. And here we are. And the result is they're sending unqualified people into long-term care homes to try and meet their needs. We have to remember, these are people with serious and complex conditions. Choking hazards are a problem. Um, Many people uh, are uh, are immobile. Uh, you know, there are f- people are prone to falls. Are these people going to be equipped to meet their needs if they have had no training? I'm deeply concerned. David, uh, what's your take on this? I mean, uh, this is a situation, frankly, that didn't develop from this government. It, it's a longstanding situation. Uh, the government has said, yes, we know and we are trying to fix it, but it's not going to happen that quickly. Uh, so what's your view on this? Well, I share Marissa's view that it's uh, uh, fraught with danger at best. But my question is, uh, what does help mean? Are you sending in someone who who's manning the uh, uh, reception desk so that a better qualified person can move off the reception desk and help out in the kitchen? Or are you willy-nilly putting anybody in there to do anything that's needed, including uh, quasi-medical services? And I think this goes to the issue Marissa raised, that there hasn't seemed to be a, a holistic approach to the staffing needs and the... And the uh, 
assistances and the levels of the levels of training that are needed. If you look at the stories about the Bob Cage in nursing home and um, all the deaths there, and you read and you read the stories and the quotes from doctors, administrators, people in the home, it just seems to be so helter skelter between people who are trained to give medical assistance, people are trained to do quasi-medical assistance, people are not trained at all, everybody's weighing in and commenting, everybody's panicking, it just seems to be a complete mess, and I think that's really the issue that we've got to uh, come to terms with, and I, I guess during the crisis is a hard time to do that, but certainly we hope that afterwards there's going to take a real hard look at this whole sector. And, and uh, Peter, and one of the things that baffles me is that it's my understanding that people who had private personal support workers coming in to spend time with their loved ones, those people have been uh, thrown out of nursing homes. It's been closed to visitors, and suddenly it's being open to volunteers. It just doesn't make sense to me, Peter. Yeah, it, it's, it seems like it's a situation of complete chaos. But, um, you know, in, in that uh, particular long-term care home, I think 30, over 30 um, members of the staff have been infected too. So, uh, I mean, you know, I, I understand wh- where CARP is coming from on this, but they need bodies in there to feed the patients and to get them to bed and to, you know, wheel them around. And they need someone in there. And, and if there are no more PSWs available, I think, you know, it, it's like when troops go down, you have to bring in a fresh new troop, fresh new uh, batch of troops, even if they're untrained, they have to go in there. And, and, uh, so responding to a crisis like Bob Cajun, you know, demands desperate measures. CARF's position is basically that long-term care has always been an afterthought. It's frankly ageist on the part of the government. They've never addressed the needs of residents in long-term care. And here we are. We're in a situation where, of course, there's going to be even greater staffing shortages in the middle of a pandemic. Some people may fall sick. Some people may have vulnerabilities that that prevent them from coming into work. And so then you have these homes where they're completely short-staffed, and which is the lesser of two evils. I'm just frustrated that we're in this position in the first right. place. Yeah. I know, but but the fact is we are in this position, David, given that we are in this position What's the correct course? Well, I think, as with with so many of these things, uh, the devil's in the details, and I think Peter touched on the other aspect of it very well. Are you simply saying, look, this is a a meltdown crisis, we need bodies that can, uh, can, uh, you know, serve out food and, as Peter said, move people around? The amount of training for that is obviously less than people who uh, are expected to provide nursing or other um, medical uh, treatments, but it goes back to what is the plan? I imagine that each nursing home has, for example, uh, plans, contingency plans for what to do if there's a fire. Well, there's apparently no contingency plans for what to do if there's a, right. a pandemic. And I think that, uh, I think you're right. I think Peter's got a point. You can make the case. It's worthy of an argument. Hey, just throw some people in there because we got nobody and we'll fix it later. But even then, I would hope that the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care is doing some scrutiny. There's some standards um, uh, of of, uh, scrutinizing what's happening. Who are these people? What are they being asked to do? How many are there? What's the balance between trained and untrained? Who's minding the store? I don't see any of those details yet in the reports. I'm not suggesting they don't exist, but I haven't seen them. That's right. And I think to David's point, there are still so many questions outstanding. Um, exactly what roles are they going to be playing? Will they be playing, um, uh, you know, a role that in some sort of medical capacity? I think that is deeply concerning. The, the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which, by the way, supports this move, um, they say, um, yeah, I mean, it's a bit vague in their statement, but they say um, hiring resident care aides uh, will fill the gaps created by this pandemic so staff can focus on care and less on the arduous documentation task. So I, I suppose they're going to be doing like the grunt work and that, that staff can focus on what they do best, you know, freeing, freeing up staff for what they do best. One of the things I might, uh, I don't know, look, urge families to consider is whether or not they can step in and, and maybe, maybe their loved one in long-term care might be able to be temporary 
temporarily discharged and go and live at home with with an adult child if they would be willing and if if they're able to meet the needs of that individual that might be something that might help offload some of the you know overwhelming work that needs to be done in long-term care uh yeah something i would consider if i had I, left but one I, i've care. i've heard of of cases of where somebody who was living with family has been moved out because uh I don't know either somebody is an essential worker there or or something like that. I mean, it's it, these are all very leave. Yeah, somebody has to leave and come back, and you don't want to be under the same roof with somebody who's out there in the out there in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah exactly. <clears throat> there are all kinds of other aspects of ageism, and uh, Dr. Nathan Stahl, who has appeared on your town hall, the Carp Town Hall, as well as this this program, was was one of the authors of it, and. I don't know. Is this uh, coming to a place where people are talking about rationing healthcare based on age? It's it's a reasonable fear in the United States, for goodness sake. A lieutenant, a lieutenant governor said uh, older people should be willing to die to save the economy. He being one of them. I mean, it 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 boggles the mind. I think any rhetoric about sacrificing the, quote, old for the sake of the economy is deeply dangerous. And we do see this happening around the, in the, around the world. In Italy, for example, people are being triaged based on their age, in addition to other conditions. But where age is a factor, it's, it's, it is only ageist. I mean, it's, ex- it's extremely ageist. I don't think age should qualify ever as a factor. David, well, well, this is this is the the key debate, and I guess we'll take it up with uh, Dr. Buckman on the break. But um, if you are going to triage based on who's most likely to survive, who's in the best shape, who's got what physical conditions uh, that uh, give you encouragement or discouragement as to their survivability, and you go through that exercise, and having done the exercise, it turns out that older people are less likely to survive, then at least it's not ageism because you did your triaging based on medical criteria. And it's no sur- surprise that, you know, a 95-year-old person isn't in as good shape as a 55-year-old person. But if you start out, if your premise is, before I even do the medical part, well, you're 65, you've lived a full life, um, so give it to the younger person, then that absolutely is ageist. And I think that's the distinction we need to make. I don't think older people should be surprised at the outcomes of a purely medical uh, analysis, mm-hmm. uh, you know, wherever that falls. But if you're going in, if you're a priority, if you're going in position before I even start to do the medical part, uh, I'm going to start passing judgment on whether you've lived a fulfilling life and your time is up. That is what we need to fight against, and, and, and I see signs of that happening. And you know what? It's it's interesting. Um, yesterday, out of the States, one of the heads of a medical system there said that they're starting to have evidence that uh, the illness is more severe and the survivability is less for people who are obese. So are people who are, that's a huge part of the population, mm-hmm. are they going to be denied ventilators? Has, has anybody talked about that? I don't think so. No, not at all. And Let's, and that's, go, that's, let's that's go from there to, let's, sorry, let's go from there to, you know, are you a smoker? Which is huge in this case. And in Italy, we've got all kinds of evidence now that they, that there's a direct correlation between the fatalities and the, whether the person was a heavy smoker. Or not. And vaping. Yeah. That's young people. I want to take a call uh, from Lynn in Peterborough. She is the person who first alerted us to the situation in Bob Cajun. She has a daughter working in that nursing home. Lynn, thank you so much for calling us. Lynn, are you there? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? I can. Thank you so much for calling us. No problem. Um, I know the situation isn't getting any better up there, but they have a lot of volunteers going in there right now to, uh, at the cost of their own safety, to do cleaning, dishes, um, serving, because and, they can't get professional help in there. And so they're, they're doing those support things. Do they have uh, PPE, the, the protective gear? Yes, they do. They do? And yep, they do. And some of them are husbands of uh, people that work there. They're doing the laundry. 
Uh, some of them are doing the cleaning. You know, everybody's doing their part up there as much as they can. It seems like the communities come together up there to help them. That's that's heartwarming to hear, but it's a horrible it, situation. It's a terrible situation, and it's not going to get any better. Um, a doctor in Lindsay had called it over a week ago. He said probably all of them have it. Wow. Uh, How is your daughter doing? She has no signs or symptoms uh, yet. Uh, She's still working. Um, You know, fairly long hours, long weeks. But her main interests are the residents. She's just crazy about the elderly. And uh, she can't leave them, you know. Well, a big um, thank you to her and thank yes, you absolutely. to you and and that's extraordinary it really is it really is and the people that are going in to help her hats off for them yeah i i think as you said marissa it's family members family members and if uh you know and and obviously these people care and they love the the residents if they're willing to help out in and and volunteer their time in a location where um they are putting themselves potentially at at great harm because of the vulnerability of residents in long-term care uh lynn is there anything Mm -hmm. that you know of that that we could do to support them um i think just making it known that you know, uh, the community is trying to help or the volunteers that are going in there um, are helping. I know a friend of my daughter-in-law's is is a cook. He's cooking up there. Um, Everybody's trying to do their part as much as they can for those residents. They can't be left behind. I know it's a serious uh, situation all over Ontario. And it's not like people haven't been notified about this before. I talked to the MPPs, the mayor, I left a message, Doug Ford's office, you know. No response, okay. No response. Lynn, thanks very much. And um, please, you know, we're here, and and please keep us updated on the situation there. We we really appreciate it. Will do. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. Bye-bye. Well, you know, these, these, well, nothing is quite like this, but, but crisis situations bring out both the best and the worst in people. And obviously that's uh, an example of the best. And, and, and really it's re- reassuring to hear from her that some of the volunteers that have gone in to help are, are not necessarily on the front lines supporting them with medical services so much as they are in the kitchen, uh, helping out with cooking or maybe at the front desk and cleaning. Cleaning. cleaning, which is really, really important mm-hmm. in that situation. And also good to hear that they have the protective gear. We've heard so much about shortages of protective gear for our frontline medical workers. And um, so that is also very good to hear. I, I do just want to go back to the conversation we were having previously before Lynn, which was, you know, t- discussing ageism and, and healthcare and triaging based on age. We have seen some examples of heroism around the world. So there was one example that was written up in a well, I can't Italian newspaper about a priest, for example, who gave up a ventilator to a young boy. And the consequence of, of that was that he ended up dying as a result. We have to remember that these are people that are likely trading their lives. You're trading your life for another. Um, and he might have survived had he had he had that ventilator, but he chose to give it up um, because he wanted to give it to a younger person. And that is, is, is um, you know, a positive that we're seeing from this is that we're allowing for that that kind of heroism to exist, yeah. but where the government comes in and mandates, if you are over the age of 80, you're not going to qualify to receive a ventilator. 80? The, 80? It's like I heard about, well, we, well I will take that in, up. 65, come on. Well, <laughs> but, but in Italy, it, it is a draft guideline that they're looking at is that people over the age of 80 won't, be, won't qualify for a ventilator. And that, that's quite concerning. Yeah. I, but but I, I think we're going to see more cases of that priest in Italy where older people um, make the sacrifice rather than um, it having to be mandated from on top. I think we'll see more and more cases of older people making the sacrifice. And uh, and um, it, I think, it, like uh, Marissa says, I think it would be a terrible thing to, to write down 
direction ahead of time on who yeah. gets what. Well, and, and wait just a minute. Let I think come I, out as a you know a natural organic sacrifice. I, I think I think David suggests in, in dire extremis like that, and let's hope we don't get there. Mm-hmm. I think David's idea is the best that it's based on uh, the state of your health and your likelihood of survival and not having... But there there was no also, mention also that this the, priest the might... the situation at yeah. that current hospital. I mean, that hospital may not be overwhelmed at that time, you know? So yeah. so there may be no need to... to but do uh, we even fashion. know... Uh, a question. Do we even know how close we are to needing to do this in Canada? I'm not talking about in Italy. I, in preparation for today's program, I spoke to somebody I know who works in the front lines at a large hospital uh, in Toronto, and she told me that they're not triaging anybody for anything right. yet. Right. They've got all the equipment they need. They've got all the beds they need. Uh, the caseload that they're seeing is quite handleable. Um, they're not doing a triage based on anything, let alone age. I, and uh, I, I've heard... Well, that's just one hospital, maybe, but I don't, I don't have a sense... Yeah, yeah we're not there, and maybe we are yeah. flattening the curve. Uh, I, I did see a number today that one in four beds in ICUs are COVID-19. That's yep. one in four. Yep. I think Could the be. biggest concern is that if the numbers do continue to go up, our hospitals are not flush with ventilators. Uh, or beds, for that matter. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm they're... not saying it's good. I'm just asking the question of how close are we needing this kind of triage? Well, I I believe that uh, we are starting to look at. Well, hopefully, we never get to a situation like New York is in, I and I think say. that's scary for us to look at. This is this is one of the most advanced places in the world, New York, and look what is happening there. And by the way, I have to salute their governor. Andrew Cuomo saying, you know, my mother is not expendable. Right. But right. but they're turning convention centers into hospitals. There are hospital ships. Um, you know, I am uh, I'm I'm assuming that our authorities are are looking into doing things like that if it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Do we think what we're doing is working better than in the US? I was looking at some figures uh, this morning. Uh, the normal ratio of Canada to the U.S. is 10 to 1. They have 142,000 cases, so we should have 14,000. We have 6,000. They have 2,490 deaths, so we should have 249. We have 65. Their death rate is 7.6 per million people. Ours is 1.8 per million people. Um, Pinecrest on its own with nine deaths was almost 14% of our whole total to date. So, Without wanting to sound, um, I don't know, I'm asking the question, it looks like our we're either cooperating better or the feds and the provinces are working more in harmony because I don't see a lot of the same political uh, backbiting here. But is anybody is anybody looking at this yet and saying maybe we're, we're doing a little bit better than uh, uh, our neighbors to the south? I well, the, the medical officer of health in British Columbia, Dr. Bonnie Henry, says... We are a cautionary note, sure. and that is that if you look at Quebec, they have a lot of cases. They have a big burden of this, and their March break fell earlier than ours, and before there were really any alarm bells setting off. Right. We uh, in the last week we just had a million people return from overseas. And right, a, a right. big percentage are people from overseas of these cases. So I think that we have to take a deep breath and, and see what I happens. Think you're right. yeah, you're the right. authorities are telling us that this week is critical. We'll, we'll have to see what happens. I think that there's been some indication, though, that um, perhaps we've taken it a little more seriously than others. And certainly with respect to the medical officer in BC, I believe she said that we were able to cut the number of COVID cases in half because of our adherence to social distancing guidelines. Um, and so I, I can't, I can't stress how we can't certainly underestimate the importance of maintaining good hand and health hygiene and get hand and hand and mouth hygiene rather. And, and, um, and so, no, you're right. Guidelines. If anything, it proves, it proves that we have to keep doing this, but, well, uh, it's encouraging, maybe, a little bit. And, and and I want to inject also a note of caution, because I noticed that there was a big discrepancy in the amount of cases resolved in BC and in Ontario, and it has to do with the way that's measured. 
And uh, so, you know what I mean? It, it's, 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 you can't take it at, at face value. No. Um, because if, if, they, if they have an easier criteria for calling something resolved or if we're not using tests on people who are, you know, who have mild disease, you know, and, and it's not clear because I was uh, emailing with a doctor. Uh, now, I, I have to wrap things up with the squad because we're going to be talking to Dr. Sandy Buckman after a short break. Uh, so thank you, guys. And uh, we're going thank to have you. Marissa and David back later in the show. And people, we will be taking more of your calls. Peter Mugridge, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Libby. Now we bring in Dr. Sandy Buckman, president of the Canadian Medical Association, and I would like to thank him for agreeing to talk to us about comments he made to the CBC just over a week ago. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Buckman. Well, thanks very much for having me, Libby. Okay, well, uh, you were talking about the situation in Italy where there's a shortage of life-saving equipment and doctors have had to choose who gets it? We've been warned that that may happen here, and this is how you framed the choice. Ultimately, it's going to come up to the doctors to say who can most benefit from, say, being ventilated. And uh, it's going to be based likely on what the potential outcome. So a 65-year-old who has led his or her life and is full will likely not be ventilated compared to a 35-year-old with three young children. Uh, a lot of people are very upset by that, that uh, age is the criteria. Uh, would you like to clarify that? Yes. So really, thanks for uh, allowing me the opportunity to clarify that, because um, this isn't about age at all and uh, decisions regarding the future care about patients. If we if we encounter situations such as they're experiencing now in Italy, um, is never going to be here about age. I'm, I'm, I'm part of that group. Uh, I'm 65. My wife is 65. I'm the primary caregiver to frail elderly parents and with my wife to her elderly dad. And, and I think we're, we're all scared that age could be considered a criteria and it won't be. We understand what it's like uh, as older people to be in this situation. It's frightening and that something like this would occur. What we're trying to illustrate through those comments is that um, is that if we aren't able to flatten the curve, and that is reduce the the, the incidence of COVID cases, in other words, spread them out over time, so that the healthcare system does have the capacity to care for all patients that come in, then physicians are faced with these kind of difficult decisions. These decisions aren't um, aren't new to us. They are made all the time as that who can benefit the most from aggressive care, say in an intensive care unit or with the use of a ventilator. These are not new. What is new is that there might be a surge in cases forcing very hard decisions. And, um, of course, that is, as I mentioned, it's frightening for all of us. But we're not there yet. And... I think the way um, I'm seeing uh, the way ethics committees are coming out around the world, like the World Health Organization, for example, they are talking about preparing groups of physicians, ethicists, etc., to look at all situations. Who is most likely to benefit from this? But it will not be on age. You know, you can get a healthy, vibrant 85-year-old who might do very, very well. All we know is that older people are at more risk of this, of the effects of this disease. So that hence we have to do everything that we can to protect, uh, uh, older Canadians. So, so let me ask you this. Why did you use the example of a 65 year old who's lived their life? Uh, that's not even old anymore. The mayor is 65, if not 66. <laughs> you're the head of the medical association. You're 65. I know many 65 year olds who are more fit than 40-year-olds. Exactly. So why did you use that example? I think it was just to, uh, to illustrate that there was decision-making that had to be made. It was not uh, to say that a 65-year-old 
would be excluded because he or she was 65. It was just an example that hard decisions would have to be made. And it was uh, kind of just how it came out. But again, and that's why I'm so I'm so pleased to be able to clarify it, that it's really based on an, a person's overall conditions. Like I mentioned, the healthy 85-year-old is going to be considered. Older people do suffer from um, many other conditions. We live longer, but we live with many conditions. And, ha- and how uh, a person will do getting the aggressive care is going to be the considerations that doctors and these committees may be forced to make. But it's not going to be about age itself. Uh, Would you like to uh, apologize for that comment? Well, I am sorry, yes, that um, that that example of using uh, a person who's 65 was was taken in the way it was, because it was never, ever meant to suggest that age would be a factor. Uh, Many people did not interpret it that way, but I can certainly see how people could interpret it that way and would be frightened by a comment like that. Okay, so it's going to be based on on who would be able to survive. I I raised this in the other half hour. Uh, There's some evidence out of New York where the situation is quite dire, Uh, according to the head of one of the hospital systems there, that people who are obese are more at risk of very serious disease and of dying. I mean, would you ration based on that? I think that when uh, doctors look at the situation, they're going to look at who is most likely to benefit from the treatments. We do that all the time now. We would do it with chemotherapy, for example. We would do it with radiation. Can a person with certain diseases or other diseases able to handle or tolerate the treatments, or would it in fact cause more suffering for them? Would it prolong their suffering or even their dying? So compassionate decisions are made as to how a person would do. I'm a palliative care physician. We're looking very carefully at what we can do to help people. That's what we do all the time. And although we're anticipating that more people will die during COVID-19, we still use all the same compassionate principles of care to ensure that they get the best treatment for them. Is there an issue also, uh, we've heard that intubating somebody can be dangerous to the doctor who does it. Uh, Do you anticipate if it comes to that cases where it, it won't be done because it might be dangerous to the doctor if they don't have the proper equipment? Well, well, we, all physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, anybody involved in, an intubate, in, in intubating someone has to be properly protected because the virus can be spread very easily under that situation. Um, so everyone must have personal protective equipment, and we're working very hard to ensure that we're going to have an adequate supply of, of, of PPE. Um, it's like saying you would never send a firefighter into a burning building without personal protective equipment. And that's why we have to ensure that all our frontline healthcare workers are provided with, with uh, PPE. Um, while we have you on the line, um, in our previous segment, you know, we've heard from Dr. Bonnie Henry, who says that we're doing a good job. It looks like we're doing better than the United States is. Is that a reasonable conclusion, or is it is it a little too soon to say that? It is early, but the information that Dr. Henry uh, put forth and some other information we're getting looks like we may be begin to beginning to flatten the curve. It really is too early, but it is certainly uh, a glimmer of hope that we may be doing it. And I think that's the the real important message. We all have to stay home. We have to physically distance ourselves, but remain uh, socially connected, you know, through obviously telephone, uh, uh, through the Internet, through FaceTime, through whatever, whatever means. But we do have to stay at home, remain uh, separate, wash our hands regularly. Those are the evidence-based techniques that really, really work. And if we're, we're all in this together, we can do that. Um, I think we're going to get we're going to get through this. We'll have enough equipment. We won't have to face these unfathomable decisions. 
And uh, as a society, we can we can make it and minimize the number of people that are going to be harmed by this by this pandemic. Uh, still, uh, with the question, if if some things are, do you do you see that this whole um, epidemic pandemic uh, has brought with it a virus of ageism? Well, you know that's that's really interesting because these things come up uh, and. You know, ageism, I think, is present. I mean, that's a, a that's a, a main factor in our culture. And so many people have been working so hard to to get rid of ageism. But we find some of these fears uh, arise. So ageism arise. We've seen racism arise uh, against Asian Canadians and, and others because of this pandemic. So I think um, it brings to the point all the more that we have to fight it and that we're on the right track by fighting issues like ageism and racism and mothers that, that currently exist. But yeah, I think maybe uh, it has brought more ageism to the core and, and reveals it for what it is. And and, and still with that question, I, I was a little jarred I, when I heard, actually it was the mayor, but apparently based on a provincial direct, directive saying, everybody over 70 don't ever leave your house. And just like there are 65-year-olds, I know 70-year-olds who are extremely healthy and fit, healthier and fitter uh, than younger people. Uh, actually, I, I live with one. Uh, and, uh, you know, there there is no reason to deny him his hikes or his walks as long as he, you know, socially distances. I mean, really should... should uh, a diktat like that be made just on age? Shouldn't it be based on what your condition is? Well, you know, I think of that even for myself, Olivia, as a 65-year-old, and I feel pretty fit. I can do everything. I've been very, very fortunate and lucky. And um, and yet I'm taking precautions as a physician. I'm taking precautions as a uh, individual for my health and also because I can be a vector or I can transmit this to my elderly parents or father-in-law because they need the care that I have to be there physically to provide. So I'm, I'm going at it that, uh, as we get older and I'm not specifying an age, our immune systems, even in the best of health, aren't the same as a, as a child or a youth. And going on the evidence that older people as, as, a as a large population group, um, don't have the same kind of immunity. So it's uh, it's just one of those realities, just like we do get more conditions, even if we're, we're healthier. So I think it's wise advice right now, this is what we're hearing from the public health experts, that um, we should be staying at home and we should be um, we should be really careful, again, for, you know, the reasons that we mentioned, even if we are really fit and in good health. Yeah, but you're not staying at home and not going out. You're doing what you have to do. Well, I'm doing everything I can to stay home and practicing virtually and uh, and helping that way. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm staying home and uh, trying to protect myself and, as I said, the, the few people that I encounter. Okay. Um, I, Dr. Buckman, what would you like to leave us with? And, and again, if you want to say anything about those uh, comments last week. Well, again, I just really want to thank you for reaching out, um, for clarifying this, for allowing me to clarify this. Uh, for I hope that I, I, I'm able to get the message out that this isn't about age and that really uh, we, uh, we're doing our best to avoid uh, that unimaginable situation of having to make these decisions. Um, if everybody does... If everybody follows the Public Health Agency of Canada's advice about staying home and about regular hand washing and physical distancing, I think we're going to get through this. I think we have this opportunity now. It's still present. We think seem to be improving. There's that glimmer of hope there. And, uh, yeah, I'd just like to leave with a message with that, uh, that uh, we can beat this uh, if we all uh, continue to do what we're doing. And I think Canadians are. Okay, Dr. Sandy Buckman, President of the Canadian Medical Association, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So we're back with Marissa Lennox and David Kravitz. Uh, Marissa, you're sitting here listening. Your reaction to what he had to say? Um, I, I thought Sandy Buckman sounded quite reasonable and uh, frankly admitted it was a poor choice of words. So 
that's great. He himself is is 65, I think he said. He continues to work. So obviously someone who is 65 hasn't lived a, a full life. Um, he seemed to walk that back. That's good. But one of the things I found interesting, of course, was he seemed actually quite resolute that age would never be a factor in Canada, um, as it has been in Italy. So I think that that's quite reassuring uh, for Canadians and particularly older adults. David? Well, I agree with Marissa. I think that... Uh you know, he, to give him credit, he showed up, he took the hit, he walked it back. I think it was a bad choice of words, particularly the second half of his quote when he said it's cut and dried, which is the opposite of what he described later as being this hard, agonizing decision. But it's all about rationing. What makes it ageist is when it becomes rationing. And the example he gave of agonizing decisions about chemotherapy, for example, uh, it's not that... Um, they don't have enough chemotherapy units to go around. They're not making a decision about whether patient X uh, would benefit from chemotherapy uh, because they need that those chemicals or those that equipment for somebody else. Right. Here, here it's the real uh, where they you know where where the rubber meets the road is. What if we don't have enough units and you're in an either or situation? That's what makes it critical that we stamp out this ageism and make sure that the triaging is based on medical criteria only. And if it's medical criteria only, let it fall where it may based on age. That wouldn't be a surprise that more older people are going to be more at risk than, than younger people. But at least if it starts out neutral, let's see where the medical data takes us then I think that's fine. Uh, and I think he was very reassuring on that, on that aspect of it. Yeah. That, um, you know, those, those who come first are those who are most likely to benefit, but not at all based on age. Yeah. Well, which is how triage effectively works. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> what I, I, I mean, I, after that interview, um, I'll, I'll give him a pass, <laughs> but yeah. He didn't exactly apologize, but that's okay. No. I'll give him a pass. He, he was pretty clear that um, it, it would not be based on age, but on who is most likely to benefit. And I guess that's reassuring because, you know, um, this has, uh, you know, maybe, maybe now that we're talking about these things openly, maybe we can make some progress against ageism. I don't know if that's overly Pollyanna and optimistic. No, I... Well, yeah, go ahead, David. No, you win. No, you <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> no, actually, actually, Age before we're, beauty. We're not, we don't see each other here. We're over on the phone, so it's hard. Uh, I was just going to say that it may be a blessing in disguise because it may, when all this is over, uh, steer the discussion back to some of the thrusts of what Zoomer is talking about and what Carp is talking about, which is radical longevity, the reinvention of aging. Statistically speaking, Dr. Buckman's got a 50-50 shot at 30 more years. So what's he going to do with that time? How productive can he be? How much can we benefit from his presence as opposed to thinking of him in the past tense where you've had past tense of full life? So if this triggers a discussion on on uh, what is what is old age in the first place, how many more years do people who were previously defined as old have, and what are they going to do with that time? What are we doing with that time? That's a discussion we can only welcome, especially at CARP and at Zuma. But yeah, you, I, I, but I don't know if I'm. this is the right moment to discuss <laughs> radical longevity. Well, but it, 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 when it's over, will it, will it force a discussion of you use 65, so... I'm I'm not being frivolous about it. What a 65 year old, a, a huge percentage of those people who are 65 but have a long way to go. Yeah, absolutely. So it's worth looking at when this is over. I'm not saying right this minute, but uh, you're right, Libby. Though it may be a blessing in disguise, in that if it does trigger that, you know, what is what is life? What is long life? What is old age? Uh, what what does it mean uh, to to have a productive life? And how much more time do you have? which may be way more than people think. Okay, Marissa wants to talk. Sure. Well, well, just going back to your point, though, ha triggering a conversation about ageism generally is something that I think has come up a lot during this crisis. We've seen ageists out in force because of COVID-19 with boomer remover, that slogan, oh, yeah. uh, you know, online. 
we there was an article uh, in a British tabloid newspaper that said, well, one silver lining of COVID-19 would be the culling of all seniors. People online talking about, oh, well, thank goodness we can get rid of all those climate deniers, assuming that all boomers, uh, you know, are, are climate change. Deniers. So we know that ageism is an issue, that it's an accepted form of prejudice, perhaps the last accepted form of prejudice. And so maybe this will force a real conversation about it because ageist practices are happening. If not in Canada, they are happening in Italy. And we do see it in their healthcare system and how they're handling this crisis. And uh, I've seen comparisons that in terms of a percentage of older people of the population, we're, you know, we're not quite there, but is similar. I want to take a, a couple of calls from people who have been waiting very patiently. Joy in Markham. Hi, Joy. Well, hello, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Um, I'm glad the doctor clarified this age thing. You know, um, you would be shocked to know that. I've, I've spoken to you several times, and I'm currently a PSW. My birthday in May, I'll be 77. Happy birthday in advance. <laughs> I hope this is all over by then. Oh, my goodness. Hopefully. And then I can hit the dance floor. <laughs> so, um, Libby, um, I've been on the front line a um, couple of weeks ago, uh, taking temperature and all that. But my main source of work is to help the elderly, especially the Alzheimer's, the dementias and all that. So, you know, it's a very challenging job. So um, at age, my age, which, you know, I'm proud of, and I'm still able to go out. As a matter of fact, I'm getting ready right now to go to my job. So um, here I am still standing and is able to give of myself to those who cannot help themselves. And I'm prepared to fight this COVID. I am prepared to fight this thing in the name of Jesus, because I'm a Christian as well. So um, with that being said, Libby, um, you know, I guarantee a lot of nursing homes would love to have me on their staff, because not only meticulous, I'm very detailed-oriented. So, you know, uh, there's no playing around with me. And at age 77, I give God the glory. So thank you, Libby, for Mm -hmm. taking my call. And I'd like to wish everyone out there a safe and um, happy life and hope we all get over this real soon. And God bless everyone. Okay, Joy, thank you so much for that. And and good for you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, it's it's interesting because one of the things that people need to live a healthy life, probably a long life, uh, is a sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. And I think what Joy said very clearly there is that she has, and there's no question that she is providing something that is very needed, help for people who can't help themselves, but it also gives her a sense of purpose. And I think in this crisis in particular, people who step up and and who help others, it will help them as well. And there's there's actually been proof of that. But I think that's that's something we just can't ignore. It's amazing. It's a, an amazing story. A remarkable and, woman. Yeah, she sounds like a real-life angel. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Honest to God. Um, So, yeah, no, I I completely agree with you. I think um, she's doing such important work and there there aren't enough people doing it. But going back to your sense of purpose, I mean, obviously, she's thriving doing it. So, Well, exactly. And and we heard earlier uh, from Lynn and Peterborough about people in the community stepping up at great risk and going into that nursing home that had nine people die and 34 workers uh, falling ill uh, and and stepping up and helping out there, even though, as as you were saying, you know, we are really nervous about those emergency diktats that are allowing unqualified people in there. Uh, yeah, we're nervous about that, but people are stepping up. And I'm sure all those people who are doing that, they also have a sense of purpose. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly. And you also wonder, too, I mean, 
Couldn't there have been an opportunity for the government to call on even retired doctors and retired PSWs to support uh, many cases going into hospitals and whatnot? But uh, is that same mandate being directed at the long-term care homes? Um, uh, not that I know of. We have to check. I I don't know that they would um, put older well, why not? I mean, Joy's yeah. 77. She's yeah. doing a great job. But at the same breath, they're, 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 they're saying everybody over 70 has to stay home and never go out, which, which, yeah. I mean, it's, that's just conflicting. It's not happening. Um, yeah. And it's, um, I would say that's ageist, even though it has been shown that older people are more, are more sensitive, are, are more susceptible to this. Uh, we are, uh, just about out of time. Uh, Marissa, what would you like to leave us with? Well, actually, um, it's not so much that older people are more susceptible so much as um, as we age, our immune system, system is right. weakened, Thanks. and so our yes. inability to, to fight the infection. So older adults may be more vulnerable to the severe consequences of COVID. So I guess my, my final thought would be to just, you know, we need to take this seriously, continue to practice good hand and mouth hygiene, continue to stay indoors if you don't need to go outside, but don't be afraid to go out for a walk. Um, that's good for you. Staying cooped up inside isn't good for anyone. So, David, I think I think we've reached the keep up the good work phase. It's too soon to say, you know, we've beaten this thing. But the numbers show that um, very very slight increases every day in the, the fatalities. Thank goodness, and it seems that the uh, cooperation of all levels of government is working. We all seem to be more or less on the same page. So I think it's um, stay the course. And, uh, uh, you know, keep, keep doing what we're doing. Okay. Thank you so much, Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer of CARP. David Kravitz, Chief Marketing, Marketing Officer at CARP. Uh, it's, it's been uh, quite a, an interesting hour. Uh, a lot for thank us you. to think about. And thanks again. Thank you. Thank you, Libby. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.